Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We just spoke about many of the things which we will present here from a slightly different perspective, that of Paul of Tarsus. In many ways, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is telling the same story as Zechariah chapter 3. And the only difference is the perspective, one being centuries before the Passion of the Christ, and the other being several decades after his sacrifice on our behalf. So in that regard, just because we had just presented Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians a few weeks ago, we will have to repeat ourselves here in several respects, but repeat ourselves we shall. This is part two of our presentation of the prophecy of Zechariah, and it is subtitled, Jesus and Satan. And there's reasons for that. Of course, we prefer the anglicized form of the Hebrew name, Yahshua. But for our purposes here, this is Jesus and Satan. Presenting the first two chapters of Zechariah, we saw that the prophet began writing around the start of the building of the second temple in the days of Zerubbabel, about 520 B.C., while his prophecy had a meaning with an immediate application in his own time regarding the building of the temple. It also has far-reaching implications related to the very purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom, which is what we call Judea as it was in the intertestamental period. Intertestamental period. We hope to further establish the proofs of that assertion here, presenting Zechariah chapter 3. This period, in which we prefer to describe as the 70 weeks kingdom, from another prophecy, which describes it in Daniel chapter 9, is also referred to as the second temple period. However, that label is not quite accurate. According to Ezra, the second temple took only four years to build. The temple of the time of Christ was actually the third temple, Herod's temple, as the second temple was rebuilt from the foundations up. That is how the Judean historian Flavius Josephus described it. And the building of that third temple is mentioned in John chapter 2, where it is said that the project took 46 years to complete. As Josephus wrote in book 15 of his Antiquities of the Judeans, so Herod took away the old foundations, taking away the foundations, one should assume that the temple is also gone, and laid others, and erected the temple upon them being in length a hundred cubits, and in height twenty additional cubits, which twenty, upon the sinking of their foundations, fell down. This is an architectural problem that is not quite clear in the original Greek. It's translated about as well as it could be. And this part of it was 
that we and and this part it was that we resolved to raise again in the days of Nero. Now the temple was built of stones that were white and strong, and each of their length was about twenty-five cubits. Their height was eight, and their breadth about twelve. And the whole structure, as also the structure of the royal cloister, was on each side much lower, but the middle was much higher, till they were visible to those who dwelt in the country for a great many miles, but chiefly to such as lived opposite them and those who approach them. So that's Josephus's, in part, his description of the temple which Herod built after removing the foundations of the temple of Zerubbabel and replacing them and building a temple atop of them. This is a completely rebuilt temple. The building project having taken 46 years, and the foundations of the second temple being completely replaced, where Josephus said that new foundations were laid, and Herod then erected the temple upon them. We cannot imagine that the resulting edifice was still the quote-unquote second temple. Rather, it could only be counted as a third temple, and that is a fact which is ignored by both Jews and Judaized Christians alike. And Jewish sources do discuss Herod's temple. They discuss it in, in practically everywhere that the temple in Jerusalem is discussed from a first century archaeological viewpoint. They admit that this is Herod's temple, but they still count it as the second temple. There were three temples built in Jerusalem between the time of Solomon and the time when the Romans had destroyed the city in 70 AD. But perhaps the fact that there were actually three temples is symbolically significant of a greater truth that is also ignored by both mainstream Christians and Jews. Very little is known of Judea. Between the time of the last prophet, Malachi, and the time of the Maccabees, the family of high priests, also known as the Hasmoneans, which is a period of 300 years. One piece of biblical literature which assuredly dates from that time is the wisdom of Sirach in the Apocrypha, but there is little else that has survived which is worthy of consideration. Even Flavius Josephus does not say very much about these years, except to give a brief account of the reception of Alexander the Great in Jerusalem, which is more mythical than historical in nature. The first book of Maccabees covers the period of history in Judea, which starts with the revolt of the Hasmonean high priests against the Greek rulers of Syria, commonly known as the Seleucids. This occurred from about 167 to 160 BC during which time the second temple was pillaged, defiled, and suffered damage. When the Seleucids were defeated, parts of it were evidently rebuilt. It is evident also that some additions may have been made, and the temple was restored. Upon its restoration, the Feast of Dedication mentioned in John chapter 10 was instituted. So even though the temple was replaced by Herod, 
the Judeans still continued to keep the Feast of Dedication of the Old Temple from the time that it was restored by the Maccabees. At this time, as it is recorded in the apocryphal but nevertheless historical first book of Maccabees, the Maccabees set out to consolidate their power, having gained their liberty by defeating the Greeks, and began running off the Canaanites and Edomites who inhabited the cities of Palestine that had formerly belonged to the ancient Israelites, waging war against them. These accounts end by the time that John Hyrcanus becomes high priest around 129 B.C. Now, as a digression, it must be explained that there really is only one historical book of Maccabees. It is not called the first because there was actually a second. Rather, the second book of Maccabees, while it is historical in nature, is apparently a work made by an unknown editor that was abridged from a now-lost history by someone called Jason of Cyrene. It relates details about the successful Judean revolt against the Seleucids, which was chronicled by one Maccabees, by first Maccabees. So its scope overlaps that of the first book of Maccabees, and it is also much more narrow. But there's no second Maccabees that follows the first book of Maccabees. That's not the way or the reason why it's called that. While the setting for the work known as third Maccabees, or three Maccabees, is several decades before this time, its contents are nearly mythical and of dubious historical value. Finally, 4 Maccabees is a later homily which draws examples for its teachings from events described in 2 Maccabees. So while it gives us some valuable insight into early Christian thinking, neither does it add to the historical records of the period. So the history of the period of the Maccabees is basically limited to the first book of Maccabees. And nothing really, even though the second book of Maccabees gives in more detail some of the early events of the first book, it doesn't add to our knowledge of history outside of the first book of Maccabees, which a lot of people might think, oh, one Maccabees and two Maccabees. Well, if it's anything like one Samuel and two Samuel, or one Kings and two Kings, or one Chronicles and two Chronicles, then one book follows the other. That's not true. It's not called the second book of Maccabees for that reason. That's the only point we're trying to make. As for the history of the intertestamental period, what is in 1 Maccabees is generally what we know, and 2 Maccabees, and possibly some of the things in 3 Maccabees, expound on that, but don't really add to our certain historical knowledge. From the point where John Hyrcanus becomes high priest, 
around 129 BC. To understand the balance of the intertestamental period, we must resort to the histories of Flavius Josephus. There it is evident that the attitude towards the Edomites and others had changed, and rather than expel their enemies, John Hyrcanus began instead to forcibly convert them to the what we could call the extant version of the religion of the Israelites in Judea, which by now can only be called Judaism, because conversion of such people is absolutely contrary to the law of Moses. This cannot be properly considered the religion of Moses. So, from this point, from 129 BC, it is more than appropriate to call it Judaism. It is interesting that just before this same time, Josephus first mentions the existence of a party called the Pharisees. But Josephus does not inform us as to how or why such a party was formed. What is notable, however, is that the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word which basically means separatist. So it is plausible that the party of separatists was formed to oppose the policy of integration undertaken by John Hyrcanus. However, Josephus also mentions the existence of other parties at this time as well, both the Sadducees and the Essenes. In any event, the existence of such parties is a sign that the nation was already being affected by apostasy, namely the apostasy which Paul of Tarsus had mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When we presented Romans chapter 9 here, very near two years ago, we explain why Paul of Tarsus had compared the people of Judea in his own day to both the Israelites and the Edomites, and then contrasted the two groups as vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. Doing this, we explain that many of the Judeans were actually Edomites. So we cited these passages from Josephus, where he records in Antiquities Book 13 that Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and that's important right there, it may not seem it, but it is for more reasons than one, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans, or, as the translations usually read, Jews. Now, forefathers here does not necessarily refer to ancient forefathers. In fact, it only refers to recent forefathers, and we will establish that shortly. We will establish that shortly. Here these cities mentioned by Josephus are called cities of Edomia. 
But originally, if you go back to Joshua chapter 17, verse 11, Dora, or Dor, was a city of Manasseh, while Marisa, or Marashah, as it's called in the King James Old Testament, was a city of Judah, Joshua chapter 15, verse 44. As it was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 35, the Edomites had moved into the lands of Israel and Judah after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. So by the time of Josephus, a lot of what had formerly belonged to Israel and Judah was being called Edomia. Here, according to Flavius Josephus, those Edomians became Jews. So Paul, in Romans chapter 9, is referring to these Edomite Jews. But it was not only Dora and Marisa that Hyrcanus had forcibly converted. Josephus said that Hyrcanus had subdued all the Edomians. All the Edomians didn't live in merely Dora and Marisa. And then, even later in that same book, Josephus explained the much greater extent of the conversion of the surrounding Edomite and other non-Israelite peoples to Judaism, which took place while Alexander Janius was high king and I'm sorry, was high priest and king of Judea from 103 to 76 BC. Now let me add also that this Alexander Janius was the first high priest of the line of the Hasmoneans to consider himself and to call himself a king. Their official position was high priest. So Josephus wrote, in part, of this Alexander Janius, but Alexander marched again to the city of Dios and took it, and then made an expedition against Essa. He marched to Golan and Seleucia, and when he had taken these cities, he, besides them, took that city which is called the Valley of Antiochus. Also, the fortress of Gamala. Now, now at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians and Edomians and Phoenicians at the seaside. Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Anthedon, Raphia, Rhinocolora, in the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn, and Marisa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel, and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis, and Gadara, of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala, in the country of Moab, Heshbon, and Medaba, Lemba, and Aronis, Gelathon, Zara, the valley of the Calicas, and Pella which last they utterly destroyed, because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rites for those peculiar to the Judeans. And that's a very important line in 
respect of all these other cities. And he continues and says, The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria, which had been destroyed. And here it is evident that if Alexander Janius destroyed cities because they would not convert to Judaism, we can be certain that all these other cities which he had subjected certainly did convert to Judaism. This practice of forced conversion had been initiated by Hyrcanus beforehand. Alexander died about 76 BC, and 40 years later, Herod the Edomite would be made king. Mainstream Christian and Jewish sources admit that Herod was an Edomite. The Wikipedia article on Herod Archelaus, the son and a successor of the first Herod, even goes so far as admitting that he was, quote-unquote, ethnarch, not king, of Samaria, Judea, and Edomia, and then in brackets they have Biblical Edom, from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D. And while they admit that, they refuse to admit the full historical implications of the accounts of the Maccabees, Flavius Josephus, and the corroborating testimony which is clearly evident in the New Testament. The Edomians and others of the enemies of ancient Israel were not only a political part of Roman Judea by this time, they were fully converted to Judaism. They identified as Judeans, and they adopted the practice of circumcision, and took the names and the language and the customs as their own. They also intermarried with many of the Israelite Judeans, and adopted the Old Testament scriptures and identity of ancient Israel. These are the Jews, from which all Jews have come. But they were not Israelites by race, and they never accepted Christ. So Christ himself had told them, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. When Herod became king of Judea under the Romans, which was something he achieved through craft and bribery, he, being an Edomite, did not simply preside over an Israelite administration. Long before he was made king, Herod had also married Mariam, the daughter, the granddaughter, of the high priest who was also named Hyrcanus, not the earlier John Hyrcanus, but a new Hyrcanus, a descendant. And they were married for many years. Hyrcanus had placed his trust in Herod and his family, and in turn, Herod betrayed him to the Romans, and he was ultimately put to death. Mariam was the niece of his successor, the last of the Hasmonean high priests to rule in Judea, whose name was Antigonus. Continuing his betrayal, Herod had ensured that Antigonus was also put to death. The Judeans had fallen subject to Rome at the time of Pompey, and rebelled at the time of Caesar and Antony. Ultimately, 
Herod opposed the family of his wife and joined the side of the Romans. Doing so, Herod ingratiated himself with Rome and also had later bribed Mark Antony. Once the legitimate high priests were out of the way, Mark Antony then arranged for Herod to be made king. When Herod came to power, he eventually killed his wife. He killed the two sons he had with her. And he killed her brothers and many other members of his wife's family and the other princes of Jerusalem so that he could eliminate any other claimants to the kingdom. Josephus spoke of some of these things in Antiquities Book 15, where he also said that since Herod had now the government of all Judea put into his hands, he promoted such of the private men in the city as had been of his party, but never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who had chosen to be of the party of his enemies, who were the legitimate rulers of Judea. At this time Herod, now he had gotten Jerusalem under his power, carried off all the royal ornaments and spoiled the wealthy men of what they had possessed. This was a Bolshevik revolution. And when, by these means, he had heaped together a great quantity of silver and gold, he gave it all to Antony and his friends that were around him. He also slew forty-five of the principal men of Antigonus's party, and set the guards, and set guards at the gates of the city, that nothing might be carried out together with their dead bodies. They also searched the dead, and whatever was found, either of gold or silver, or other treasure, it was carried to the king. Nor was there any end of the miseries he brought upon them. This Antigonus was the son and surviving heir of Hyrcanus, the high priest and king of Judea, and he was also the uncle of Herod's wife, Marianne. In Antiquities Book 14, Josephus had explained, that Herod and the Roman general Sosius took Jerusalem, capturing Antigonus, who had to be turned over to Antony. So Herod, not being able to kill him, bribed Antony to kill him. Josephus continues, Now when Antony had received Antigonus as his captive, he determined to keep him for his triumph, in other words, to make him walk in chains in Rome after Antony had put down the rebellion. But when he heard that the nation grew seditious, and that, out of their hatred to Herod, they continued to bear goodwill to Antigonus, he resolved to behead him at Antioch. For otherwise the Jews could in no way be quieted meaning the Judeans. And Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous Strabo the geographer, who wrote a now-lost history, which Josephus is citing, and Strabo of Cappadocia attests to what I have said, and thus he speaks, Josephus quoting the now-lost volume of Strabo, Antony ordered 
Antigonus, the, the Judean, to be brought to Antioch, and there to be beheaded. And this Antony seems to me, to Strabo, to have been the very first man who beheaded a king, as supposing he could do no other way, he could no other way bend the minds of the Judeans so as to receive Herod, whom he had made king in his stead. For by no torments could they be forced to call him king. So all of the people of Judea were rejecting the appointment of Herod as king, and they wanted back Antigonus. So Mark Antony's remedy for that, and this was at Herod's suggestion, as Josephus infers otherwhere, other, uh, in, in other places, Antony's solution to that was to kill Antigonus, to behead him. For by no torments could they be forced to call him king. So great a fondness they had for their former king, the high priest Hyrcanus. So he thought that this dishonorable death would diminish the value they had for Antigonus's memory, and at the same time would diminish the hatred they bear to Herod. So the principal men among the Judeans did not want Herod the Edomite for a king. But they were given no choice by the Romans. Then in Josephus, in that same place in Antiquities Book 15, goes on to explain that as soon as Herod gained power in Judea, he despised the office of high priest, where he says, he also did other things in order to secure his government, which yet occasioned a sedition in his own family. For being cautious how he made any illustrious person the high priest of God. This is before he had actually killed the rest of his wife's brothers and, and, and cousins. He sent for an obscure priest out of Babylon, whose name was Ananelus, and bestowed the high priesthood upon him. Later, in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Josephus says that Herod was then made king by the Romans, but did no longer appoint high priests out of the family of Hasmonius, but made certain men to be so that were of no eminent families, but barely of those who were priests. He never entrusted the priesthood to the posterity of the sons of Hasmonius. Archelaus also, Herod's son, did like his father in the appointment of the high priests, as did the Romans also, who took the government over the Judeans into their hands afterward. Accordingly, the number of the high priests from the days of Herod until the day when Titus took the temple and the city and burnt them were in all twenty-eight. The time also that belonged to them was a hundred and seven years. Some of these were the political governors of the people under the reign of Herod and under the reign of Archelaus and his son although after their death the government became an aristocracy, and the high priests were entrusted with a dominion over the nation, and thus may such and thus much may suffice to be said concerning our high priests. And as we established somewhere, I don't exactly remember where, 
But somewhere, perhaps in Acts chapter 5, I believe, in our presentation on the book of Acts, given here three years ago, we demonstrated that most of those 28 high priests were Sadducees. And, with all probability, they were Edomites, and definitely not Judeans. And the apostles in Acts chapter 5, although the language is not translated very well in the King James Version, the apostles definitely distinguished their own race and people from the race of the high priests with explicit language. So the high priests and the government of the people were no longer the Levitical high priests of the line of the Hasmoneans, but rather they were the political appointees of Herod the Edomite. It is in reference to these priests and their officers that Paul of Tarsus had written when he wrote his second epistle to the Thessalonians around 50 or 51 A.D., writing to them during his ministry in Corinth, and Paul had warned them that you should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, and Paul's referring to the revelations of Christ in relation to these people, that the man of lawlessness was already revealed, that the apostasy had already come. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, in the present tense, at Paul's time. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself, in the present tense, in Paul's time, that he is a god. Paul goes on to say that the presence of these people is in accordance with the operation of Satan, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood. And there we see the same Satan, which is prophesied here in Zechariah chapter 3. Judeo-Christians ignore all of this intertestamental period of history. It seems that they would rather believe that the Jer Jerusalem of the time of Christ was still the same quaint little place that it had been, in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. It seems they would rather believe that the character of the people of Jerusalem was the same as the character of those who had returned with Zerubbabel over 500 years before Jesus Christ was born. It also seems that the Jews identify the temple destroyed in 70 AD with that same temple which was built in the days of Zerubbabel so that they can more easily associate themselves with the people who returned to Jerusalem from the captivity. But nothing is further from the truth. Jerusalem in the time of Christ had grown into a cosmopolitan multiracial metropolis. They went from a temple that took four years to build to a temple that took 46 years to build. Between the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Christ, the temple was replaced, and so was the greater part of the people and their leaders. In chapter 3 of the prophecy of Zechariah, Joshua the high priest stands before God, and he is opposed by Satan. The near vision 
The short-term fulfillment is plainly evident where the people of the countries which bordered Jerusalem had resisted the rebuilding of the temple in the city. But the far vision, the long-term transcendental fulfillment of this prophecy is where another Joshua, which is Joshua Christ, is opposed by Satan throughout his own ministry, which was the fulfillment of the purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom. The opposition is not simply from the devil who offered him the world. Rather, it is from the organized priesthood which, since the days of the first Herod, had consisted of political cronies and operated the temple as a criminal enterprise. Much of that criminal enterprise is described by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 23. For a more immediate example, Flavius Josephus had described how, in the time of Albinus, around 61 or 62 A.D., the high priest Jesus, a Sadducee, another Jesus, also had servants who were very wicked, who joined themselves to the boldest sort of the people, and went to the threshing floors, and took away the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence, and did not refrain from beating such as would not give these tithes to them. The real priests were being driven into poverty by those who called themselves Jews, but were truly the synagogue of Satan. That is in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 20, where it is evident that the Sadducees, the crime lords of ancient Judea, were persecuting the Levitical priests, who were the only true legitimate priests of the day. Josephus explains in that same book that they had killed the Apostle James, whom he also said was the brother of Christ. These Sadducees and those from among the scribes and Pharisees and others who clung to them, they were the opponents of Christ, as they themselves had professed, as we see it in Matthew chapter 27, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Those children are the Jews of today. This is the Satan of Zechariah's prophecy, which Joshua the high priest was to face, as it is described here in Zechariah chapter 3. So the temple of the time of Christ was not the second temple at all, but the third. And the people of Jerusalem who had opposed Christ were not Israelites at all but the Edomites of the Old Testament. In the closing verses of Zechariah chapter 2, we read in verse 11, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto thee. This cannot justly describe anything which happened during the Second Temple period. Although many of the Canaanites, Edomites, and others became a part of the religion and citizenry of Judea in the century before the birth of Christ, as it was described by Josephus, they had been described as his enemies throughout all of Scripture and could never be his people. They rejected him. 
Could Paul have been wrong for quoting the passage where it says in Malachi, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and characterizing the Edomites as vessels of destruction when he wrote his epistle to the Romans? And could Christ have been wrong for warning about those who say they are Judeans and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan, on two occasions in the Revelation? And where Christ had told the Pharisees that when they made a proselyte, they make him twofold more the child of hell than themselves, they themselves must have been onefold the children of hell in the first place. Where here in Zechariah 2.11, Yahweh promises to dwell in the midst of thee. He is speaking to the same Israelites who are the object of Zechariah's prophecy, so where it says, many nations shall be my people, those many nations must be the same as the thee in the clause where he says, I will dwell in the midst of thee. The only manner in which the terms could agree is if the many nations are many nations of those same Israelites. There is a similar promise in scripture found in Ezekiel chapter 37. After the prophecy where it says that Judah and Israel were to be made one stick in the hand of God. There he promises that moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the nations shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. In the midst of them, those many nations that join themselves to the Lord. If both prophecies are true, Ezekiel and Zechariah, then both promises must be made exclusively to the Old Testament children of Israel. So those many nations are the nations of the seed of Abraham, the great nation and company of nations promised to the children of Israel in Genesis. Where in Romans chapter 4, Paul said that Yahweh God, in his promise to Abraham, called those things which be not as though they were. He was referring to the nations which were promised to come from Abraham's seed. The nations of the promise did not yet exist because they were promised to come from Abraham's seed. So because the promises of God are certain, as the promise is certain to all the seed, they were spoken of as if they did exist even though they had not yet existed when the promise was made. That's what Paul's saying there. In many ways, in his epistle, Paul then informed the Romans that they were a part of those people. And, if we look at history, Rome did not exist when the promise to Abraham was made. In fact, Rome wasn't founded until about 752 B.C. Before that, Paul had written to the Corinthians, and he told them that their fathers were with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. If we look at history, the Dorian Greek people of Corinth did not exist when the promise to Abraham was made. 
In fact, by all historical accounts, the Dorians settled in Greece about 1100 BC. Likewise, Paul had told the Galatians, a people who did not come into the historical existence until about 612 BC. Paul told the Galatians that they were under the law, and therefore they were redeemed in Christ. And if we look at history, the Galatians did not exist when the promise to Abraham was made. The same can be said of all the other peoples to whom Paul had brought the gospel, because they had all descended from Abraham through Jacob. For that same reason, there were no epistles of Paul to any people who did exist when the promise to Abraham was made. So, there were no epistles of Paul to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Ishmaelites, to the Syrians, or to any of the cities of the Persians, or the Ionians, or to the many cities of the Arabs, or to anyone else who did not come from the loins of Abraham. The last passage of Zechariah chapter 2 reads, Be silent, O all flesh, before Yahweh, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation, which also has a meaning pertaining to Yahshua Christ. While this may metaphorically refer to the building of the second temple, it most literally refers to the resurrected Christ, the everlasting house of God prophesied in Zechariah 1.16. The building of that true house, not made with hands, was the entire purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom. With all of this background, we may begin to understand Zechariah chapter 3. In our presentation of the first two chapters of Zechariah's prophecy, we purposely discussed in advance the high priest of the time of the building of the second temple, whose name was Jeshua, as it appears in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, even though he is not mentioned until this third chapter of Zechariah. We did this because we were illustrating the historic record of this period as it is found in the pages of Nehemiah and Ezra. But we did it also because we wanted to underline the importance of the far vision, the transcendental aspect of Zechariah's prophecy. We explained that this was, that this Jeshua was clearly the object of the near vision or the short-term meaning of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 3. But the prophecy far transcends the purpose of the late 6th century high priest. So we also asserted that this Jeshua, referred to here in Zechariah by a slightly longer version of what is essentially the same name, which is Joshua in English, must also have been chosen to serve as a type for another Joshua, which is Yahshua Christ. The nations which shall be joined to Yahweh in that day, as it is described in the closing verses of Zechariah chapter 2, is a reference to the many nations of scattered Israel, which were converted to Christ upon the spread of the gospel. Understanding the transcendental aspect of Zechariah's prophecy, we can see that this is true. 
Zechariah 3.1 actually continues the vision which the prophet began recording in Zechariah chapter 2, where Jerusalem was measured. The scattering of Israel was, re- was evoked. The children of Israel are warned to deliver themselves from Babylon. The enemies of God are warned for the harm they would do to them. And there is a promise of the regathering of the nations to Christ. And now the prophet continues. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now these passages may be interpreted as representing the early struggles which the Judeans in the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua had with the Samaritans and the Edomites in the environs of ancient Jerusalem. But they are more properly interpreted as a prophetic description of the overall history of ancient Jerusalem and of a struggle which would not come to a head until the time of Jesus or Yahshua Christ when he had persistently rebuked his enemies in the temple in Jerusalem until they decided to kill him. Of this, Paul of Tarsus had said that the man of sin had already been revealed who is acting in accordance with the working of Satan, as the King James Version has it. Paul also explained that this man of iniquity was prevailing in his present time, but that Christians could expect to see him destroyed at the advent or the second advent of the Christ. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. The filthy garments and the iniquity are representative of the sins of Israel and are described here in the shame which the high priest would bear for the people. In the 69th Psalm, which Paul also cited in reference to Christ in Romans chapter 15, we read, For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb unto them. Filthy garments and sin are associated throughout Scripture. As early as Genesis chapter 35, where it says, Then Jacob said unto his household, and unto all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And as late as Revelation chapter 3, in the message to the Christian assembly at Sardis, where it says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white.
For the immediate interpretation, the near vision, with the rebuilding of the temple and the resumption of the sacrifices and other rituals of the kingdom, the high priest Jeshua, in the time of Zerubbabel, would be restored to his proper function. So by the mercy of God, Jeshua's soiled garments of sin are exchanged for clean ones, because once again the high priest may fulfill the role of offering propitiations for the sins of the people. But the transcendental reference, the far vision, is certainly to Yahshua Christ, where concerning the sins of the people, we see a similar mention of the shame that Christ would bear in the messianic prophecy which is found in Isaiah chapter 53. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. A man of filthy garments. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When the children of Israel were put off in sin, it was the name of Yahweh their God which had become polluted. As we see in the remedy, we see this in the remedy prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 39, where Yahweh says, So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. That is one aspect of how the reproaches of Israel had fallen upon Christ. Allegorically, the change of garments is evident in the Gospel, where it says in Matthew chapter 28, where speaking of the risen Christ, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow, filthy garments. And we see in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 5, And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments. And the angel of Yahweh stood by. The mitre, and we have to go off on a digression here, because this word is very confusing. The mitre was worn by the high priest, as it is often mentioned in Exodus and Leviticus, speaking of when Moses had anointed Aaron as the high priest. We read in Leviticus chapter 8, and he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Now, we have some insight into that in Antiquities of the Judeans in Book 11. Flavius Josephus had said of a particular high priest of the time of Alexander the Great, 
Speaking of Alexander himself, that the high priest, in purple and scarlet clothing, with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate, whereon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name, meaning Alexander, and first greeted the high priest. There is often debate over the meaning of the word mitre. It does not, it does not describe the fillet-style hat typically worn by Roman Catholic bishops. But the description meant by the word which Josephus used, and which Whiston and the King James translators rendered as mitre, is arguable. Liddell and Scott say of a kidaris, that's the word Josephus used, that it is a Persian headdress, probably, probably, because they really don't know, equivalent to a tiara or a kerbasia. Liddell and Scott only define the tiara as the Persian headdress. However, for kerbasia, they have a Persian bonnet or hat with a peaked crown, probably much like the tiara. The king alone wore it upright, meaning the Persian king. Here in Zechariah, the Septuagint has the word kidaris, however, the same word that Josephus used. However, in the eight other passages where the word mitre appears in the King James Version, only on three occasions does the Septuagint Greek have this word. On the other five occasions, it has another word, mitra, the word which we get mitre from, which commonly described a belt or a girdle, even a belt of metal armor. But the word was also used as a synonym for kidaris, and was even more commonly used to, to describe a headband worn by Greek women or by the victors at the games. So a mitre could be several different things, but it is not that fillet-shaped hat worn by the modern Roman Catholic bishops. While Paul does not mention a mitre, and after the time of Christ, the Levitical priesthood is dissolved, Nevertheless, the prophecy foretells the passing of the high priesthood to Christ, as we read in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul said that Christ was called of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Paul was referring to messianic prophecies found in the Psalms. But because the order of Melchizedek incorporates the office of kingship in addition to the high priesthood, we read in the Revelation, in chapter 14, that I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. So the mitre is out. And the angel of Yahweh... Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6. And the angel of Yahweh protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these 
that stand by. These that stand by. There may, of course, be a short-term application of this prophecy to Jeshua as the second temple was being built. But there was opposition, and there was opposition from neighboring peoples. But in the transcendental understanding, it is perceived that only Yahshua Christ had actually kept the commandments of God perfectly. As he attested in John chapter 15, speaking to his apostles. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Therefore, speaking of Christ, Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house, meaning that Christ is both high priest and the God who built the house. Then Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 4, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. In other words, Christ had become our high priest worthily, because being tempted with all the temptations of a man, he did not sin. And Paul says, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. However, there is a promise here nevertheless, where Joshua is told that if he keeps the ways and charges of Yahweh, that he would be given places to walk among these that stand by. The new the New American Standard Translation has the last clause to read, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. To understand what that means, we can only guess. We must look to see who it is that was standing by. Earlier, in verse 5, it says, And the angel of the Lord stood by. But here in verses 6 and 7, that is the same angel who is saying these things to Zechariah. So we must go back a little further to verse 1, where it says that Joshua's, Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Who was standing by? The angel of the Lord? who is not the object of the clause, and Satan. And we would assert that Satan must be the object of the clause because it could not possibly refer to anyone else. And that raises another question because we see in verse 4, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him. While Satan was standing at his right hand, at Joshua's right hand, 
right along with Joshua before the angel. The scene depicted here in Zechariah is much like that of a trial where God is judge and Satan is the opponent who stands accusing Joshua of wrongdoing. In this scene, Satan must be a description of those standing here, as the plural is used in both the Hebrew and the Greek. So we see a type for the later trials of Christ. The Apostle Peter spoke in a similar manner as a warning to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So regardless of the accusations being made by Satan or the enemies of God collectively, if one keeps the ways and charges of Yahweh, there is an assurance that one will be given space to walk amongst those enemies. Now we may say that in verse 4, it doesn't seem to be that those who stood before him, who were told to take away the filthy garments from him, could actually be that collective Satan. But those devils did indeed take away the filthy garments of Yahshua Christ when they crucified him. That enabled his resurrection and his change of garments. In Revelation chapter 12, when the great dragon is cast out of heaven, there is joy because the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Later in that same chapter, the dragon is portrayed as attempting to kill the Christ as a child. There the dragon must be represented by Herod, the Edomite Jew, where it says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. However, it also says that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. Where we see that the symbol must also be a reference to the Jews collectively and all of their allies who are used by them in their opposition to the Christian people of God. And those allies are the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Herod, only Herod, the Edomite king, can represent the dragon in its attempt to slay the Christ child. But Herod, the individual, cannot by himself be the one who made war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God, and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. Of course, Herod didn't even live to hear the gospel. So it must be speaking collectively of a group of people. And this Satan represents a collective people in the form of the Edomite Jews who opposed Christ during the course of his ministry. Where Zechariah continues, it is once again apparent that this is indeed a dual prophecy and that Joshua the high priest is a type or a model for Joshua Christ who is the ultimate high priest. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at 
For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Later, in Zechariah chapter 4, the seven eyes are mentioned again, where we are informed that they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Examining Revelation chapter 5, we see that these also refer to Christ, as John had written, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The stone with seven eyes laid before Joshua must therefore be representative of Christ himself, the same foundation stone of Psalm 118 and Isaiah chapter 28, where Yahweh declared, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. <laughs> Excuse me. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet is depicting Jeshua, the historical priest, called Joshua here, the high priest, as a model for the coming branch, Joshua Christ, the root and the offspring of David, as he described himself in Revelation chapter 22. Of him, it was also prophesied in a similar manner in Isaiah chapter 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Yahshua Christ the branch of the prophecy, is the future high priest who would bear the iniquities of his people. And only in him was that iniquity removed in a day. The struggle with Satan depicted by the prophet actually begins to unfold over the entire history of the Second Temple period, where initially the enemies of God could not stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But eventually they were able to infiltrate and subvert Jerusalem, gaining control over both the nation and the temple. So when Yahshua Christ stood at the temple before God, Satan was at his right hand to resist him. The struggle which Christ would suffer is therefore depicted as a struggle with Satan for the control of his people, where it says in the 82nd Psalm that God stands in the congregation of the mighty, he judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? 
This too was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ, where he stood among his people and chastised them for accepting the wicked persons of his enemies. So it says here in verse 2, And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? In other words, retrieved from its former trials. This rebuke of Satan also happened by the mouth of Yahshua Christ during his earthly ministry. Every time that Christ had rebuked the Jews. After he was glorified in his resurrection, the graving of the stone was engraved, and the iniquity of the land, as a type for the people of Yahweh, was removed. The fellows that sat before Jeshua are a type for the companions of Christ, who indeed became men wondered at, as they were his apostles. He told them, I am the vine, you are the branches, invoking some of this very same language in Zechariah. From this point on, the gospel of peace was declared to the people of God, as Yahweh says here in Zechariah, that in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. But there is no peace to the wicked. That his enemies, collectively, were themselves Satan, is manifest in the gospel in places such as John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 10. There, Yahshua was speaking to his disciples, and he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you if you keep God's commandments. These serpents and scorpions were the enemies of God in Jerusalem. So it says here in Zechariah, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by, in reference to those same devils give you power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. In John chapter 8, Christ was speaking to his enemies. In this exchange, where he said, I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. Edomites were Abraham's seed. But the, God's word had no place in the Edomites. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. The enemies of Christ were Abraham's seed, but they were also the children of Cain, as only Cain could be labeled a murderer from the beginning. In a different way, Christ had identified them as descendants of Cain in Luke chapter 11, where he insisted that they were responsible for the blood of Abel. The only way that both statements could be true, that they were both of Abraham and Cain, is if they were the children of Esau, rather than the children of Jacob. Esau had mingled with the Canaanites, who in turn were mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim, which is evident in the Old Testament. Of course, an exception would be any of the descendants of Salah, Judah's Canaanite son. The historicity of this situation is elucidated in Book 13 of Josephus' Antiquities of the Judeans, that the Edomite population of Judea were all converted to, to the religion of Jerusalem, and that is how Paul explains the division in Romans chapter 9. It is explained in the prophecy of Ezekiel, in chapter 35, that the Edomites would indeed move into the lands of both Israel and Judah after the deportations of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And it is proven in the pages of Josephus that they did. We witnessed Josephus make the admission that Marisa, a former city of Judah, and Dor, a former city of Manasseh, were quote-unquote cities of Edomia, because in the time of the New Testament, much of Judea, much of the Judeans, the cities of Judea, were taken over by the Edomites. And this happened in the context of Antiquities, Book 13, dating to 130 years before the birth of Christ, that Josephus called these places cities of Edomia, we see that the Edomians, just as Ezekiel chapter 35 says, the Edomians had moved north and taken over the countries of Judah and Israel. Or Josephus would not have called Dora and Marisa cities of Edomians. As we have seen here at length, after their conversion to Judaism, Eventually, the Edomites took over the entire nation and put their own into office as its leaders and chief officers. Where these Edomites are recorded as saying in John chapter 8, that we be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. There is a prophecy in Malachi chapter 2 where certain priests who corrupted the covenant of Levi, as we see Josephus explain to us that these high priests are not Levites, are portrayed as saying, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. And the answer from Yahweh God is this, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. 
Josephus was blind to the implications, but Josephus himself, being raised a Pharisee, carried a lot of the leaven of the Pharisees. But if you read the book of his autobiographical materials, which survives in most editions of his work, his own daughter was married into the family of Herod. So even Josephus, the Levite, he was a Levitical priest. His own daughter had did what Malachi warned against by marrying the daughters of a strange god, by marrying the people of a strange god, and by mixing with the Edomites and profaning the covenant of Levi. Those words in Malachi are a prophecy of the events recorded in John chapter 8. So these enemies of Christ are not Israelites at all, but rather they are Canaanite Edomite bastards. And Cain was also a bastard. And of course the Rephaim that the Canaanites mingled with were giants. So they were also bastards. In Romans chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus says, For they are not all Israel, which are all of Israel. And then he explains that neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Then further on, from the descendants of Isaac, he compares Jacob and Esau. And he says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Quoting Malachi and goes on to contrast vessels of wrath filled to the destruction, which are the Edomites, with vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, which are the true Israelites. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul would describe the Edomite rulers of Judea as the son of destruction, which also must be a reference to the fact that they are Edomites, as he used the same term for Edomites when he wrote the epistle to the Romans. Comparing Zechariah chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 2 to the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 35, to the records of the gospel and the letters of Paul, to the history of Josephus in Antiquities books 13 through 15, we see a clear and consistent picture throughout scripture and history. The people who now call themselves Jews are not the ancient people of Israel. Rather, they are the Satan of Zechariah 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2. The serpents and scorpions of Luke and the children of the devil described by Christ in the Gospel of John. Some of these things we have just said in the same manner in our recent presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. We were compelled to repeat them because Zechariah chapter 3 is a prophecy of that same thing which Paul's epistles, of which Paul's epistles are a record in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and elsewhere. The Bible repeats facets of this same account many different times. And most Christians still do not understand it, preferring to believe fables instead. We shall therefore repeat many of these things in the near future, when, Yahweh willing, we hope to make a new presentation of the prophecy of Malachi. 
and we get to Malachi chapter 2, we get to Malachi chapter 2 and have to explain how Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Well, Judah in ancient times did. But Malachi is using Judah as a type for what Judea was doing in his own time. And that's why the covenant of Levi was corrupted in his own time. Because Judea was repeating what Judah had long ago done. We shall continue to repeat ourselves because the proper understanding of these aspects of Scripture is integral to an understanding of history and of what is happening in the world around us today. If you don't understand the past in accordance with the Word of God, you can't understand the present and you're totally blind going into the future. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night. The Jews are safe.